can share in the excitement uh, of this new ministry that we're going to be bringing here to the Skillman Church of Christ, Friends Speak. So be sure to uh, call the office and uh, reserve your spot for the April 15th uh, gathering, the lunch gathering, where we'll be talking more about this incredible ministry and how you uh, can be involved uh, here in Dallas. Another thing, too, is, uh, Josh, when is that uh, the fundraiser for the uh, uh, Rising Star? May 12th. So also, we're going to be having another pancake breakfast on May 12th. So if you have your calendars, just kind of jot that down. Uh, that'll be benefiting a, a ministry, uh, a soccer ministry in Africa that it's, it's dear to many of us here at Skillman. And I got one more opportunity for you to serve. We want to be about the community and uh, involved here in our neighborhood. And on April 21st is uh, something that's going on called, called Transform Dallas. And there's a nonprofit not too far from here called the Dallas, Dallas Leadership Foundation. And they're putting together this massive service project on April 21st. First, different churches and individuals are gathering together. And uh, they, I called them and said, hey, do you have any spots for us? And they said, well, at Austin Street Homeless Shelter, uh, we have 40 spots open for this block party and makeover. Where we're going to be helping some of the homeless uh, population of Dallas uh, have, a, have a makeover and a block party. It's, it's going to be a celebration. And uh, they said, well, do you want all 40 spots? You're just going to claim it. And I went on a limb and I said, yes, I will find 40 people <laughs> to come on April 21st. And it's a little bit of a risk, you know, because right now I'm the only one <laughs> that's, that's committed. Uh, but uh, if you could, consider that. And we'll, I'll be talking about it more. There'll be some emails. But April 21st, it's, I think, from 11 to 3 and it'll be something that can benefit uh, the city of Dallas. And so I'd love for you to be uh, a part of that and join in on the fun. But today uh, we're going to talk about something that I've been excited about this for a long time. And I want to begin this sermon on a certain day in the year 1968. In fact, it was Christmas Eve, December 24th of 1968, from the coast of Florida to the mountains of Washington, people all over this nation were glued to the television. In fact, on this night, it was the most watched program up to, to the point of the American history. What it was, was the Apollo 8. The Apollo 8 had taken off and they were doing the first orbit around the moon. And I don't know, do any of you remember this? Were you at all watching the 1968 uh, orbit of the Apollo 8? I mean, it's incredible because they were up there and they were able to have this video feed down to earth on December 24th. And they talked about what they saw. They were able to share pictures of the earth from, from the moon's perspective. The first that the earth, the Americans, the earth had ever seen. And then at the very end, they ended their broadcast with this right here. And I have a clipping, about a minute clip, of this Apollo 8 feed from 1968 to the American public. and void, 
Baptist was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called these seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Isn't it amazing their response to what they experienced? They were the first humans in history to be able to see the earth in its fullest form from the moon's perspective. And when they were up there and giving this video broadcast back to earth, what came to mind and what was in their heart was the Genesis 1 account of the creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we all know this story, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. This creation account is just one of the most famous scriptures in all of history. We, we know, I mean, right now, if I were to start this, in the beginning, we all know this story. It's an amazing story, and it's a moving story. And this morning, we're going to look at this particular text. But I want to begin by cautioning us of how we first look at this text. Because so often, Genesis 1 in Genesis 2, the creation account, it has been viewed as a history textbook. It has been really, many times, been viewed as a way to answer the question, well, how did it really happen? Well, this morning I want to argue that that's probably not the main point of this text. That the writer at the time, the Genesis 1, that there are bigger questions at stake than what, what really happened. In fact, this genre of writing where it's like a history textbook or a newspaper, that was something that came later in human history. This, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, these did not have, the, the, the question that it was asking was, who is God? The creation account is an unbelievable statement about the identity of God. It's a theological piece it's a theological statement about who God is. And it's a theological statement about who we are compared to him. It's an incredible, it's an incredible uh, story that reveals to us the very nature of God. And we're going to do this in two different parts. Today we're going to tackle Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-4-A. The first part of Genesis 2-4. The next Sunday, if you guys are back here, we're going to do 2-4 all the way to the end of chapter 2. And we're going to look at what is how is God described in each of these passages and what can we learn and how can we participate in this incredible view of God? You can see in this first chapter, in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, a picture of God as the creator who was incomparable, matchless, unrivaled, beyond compare or comparison, unequaled. 
And you all know that I'm a pretty big fan of words and vocabulary. And I was just trying to think what would be the word that could describe the characterization of God in Genesis 1. And the word that came to mind was transcendence. Transcendence is an adjective. The first definition of transcendence is beyond or above the range of normal or merely physical human experience, surpassing the ordinary, exceptional. And the transcendence of God is existing apart from and not subject to the limitations of the material universe. And as we read this text today, Genesis 1 we can see that the transcendence of God, the awesomeness of God, the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the royalty of God, it's just oozing from the text. It's dripping off the page. I mean, we can begin with the very first sentence. Transcendence of God through creation in the beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. You know, we're so used to this sentence. We hear it all the time. And it's a very small sentence, but it carries a lot of weight. I mean, do you realize what this verse is saying? That in the beginning, it was God, this God, that was the creator of the world. And you see, when these stories were being accumulated and writing, were written down in the ancient Near East, there were all these different theories about how the earth came to be. There were the Babylonians. And the Babylonians taught that the earth came to be because of a battle between these two forces in the sky, Tiamat and Marduk. And Tiamat beat Marduk and the earth was formed from the, the carcass of Tiamat. That was the Babylonians' version the Egyptians, they also had a different account of how the earth came to be. But here in this first sentence, Genesis 1 says, here's the deal. In the beginning, it was God. God who was the creator. He is the beginning, the source. And God is also, through his name, transcendent. The transcendence of God is seen in the name of God. Because in Genesis 1, 1, in, in this whole chapter, God is referred to as Elohim. And it's interesting that next week we'll see that a different name for God is used. And we'll talk about that next week. But this week, Elohim is used to describe and to talk about God. And Bill, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. This is plural. Don't worry. We'll talk about it. Bill knew... That this word, Elohim, is in the plural form in Hebrew. But how could this be, right? Because this is a, a monotheistic religion. And all throughout scripture, it is God as being one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So how could it be that in Genesis 1-1, when God is referred to as Elohim, that it's in the plural form? Well, this isn't referring to, to, you know, multiple gods, but what is believed, to, why this is believed to be used is that, in the plural, is that all godness, all godness is present in the character of God in Genesis 1. You can see transcendence, the holiness, the amazingness of God, even in the name that's being used. It's the plural form because the singular couldn't do it justice. You have to use the plural because all of godness is wrapped up 
and who this is. In fact, one author said the basic meaning behind the name Elohim is one of strength or power of effect. Elohim is the infinite, the all-powerful God who shows by his works that he is the creator, sustainer, and supreme judge of the world. The transcendence of God is even in his name. But if we continue on, we can see the transcendence of God through his power of the heavenly lights. It's interesting if you look at this text in verse 14 through 19. When God is creating the heavenly lights, the the sun and and the, the moon and the stars, God says, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let, that, let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now we're going to pause right here because have you ever thought why is the sun and the moon referred to like this? Like, why did they not just say the sun and the moon were created? In the Hebrew, the words are semis and yarah. Why, instead of using these common words, sun and moon, in Genesis 1, why does it just say, well, you know, God created these two heavenly lights. You know, one's the sun and one's the moon. You know, they, one lights during the day, one's at night. Why do you think that is? I want to remind you, this poem in Genesis 1, this is a theological statement. It's, it's, it has a purpose. It has an agenda. The, the, the writer in Genesis 1 is saying, hey, you around me in this tribe, the, the, you know, the, the, the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians, and the, you think that the sun is a god, and you think the moon is also a divine being. But let me tell you this, my god, Elohim. He created them. And he's so awesome, I'm not even going to refer to them as actual things. I'm just going to call them two heavenly lights. This is a statement about the power and the majesty and the brilliance of our God. We can also see God's transcendent through his judgment. You see, Genesis 1 is a very, very structured chapter. There's structure, there's hierarchy, there's a rhythm and a flow. It's almost as if God is being represented through the style. You have God bringing order to chaos. And you can see here that there is a, there's a flow, a commonality. You have the introduction where God says, and then you have a command where God commands something into life. Then you have a report. And then, my friends, you have an evaluation. And God saw that it was good In Genesis 1, who is doing the judgment? God is doing the judgment. God is the one that defines if something is good and if something is bad. And if God says that it is good in Genesis 1, then it is good. In fact, after day 6, he says that it is very good. Genesis 1 illustrates that what makes something good or bad are not human standards, but rather God makes the standard in Genesis 1 of what is good and what is bad because he is the one, God is the one that is defining good and bad. I mean, whenever he creates light, 
He creates light, separates the light from the darkness, and then he says that it's good. Well, why all of a sudden is light good? The only reason, because light has done nothing but shed light on something. But God deems it as good. And here we see just, um, how, but how powerful is that? That you have the authority to de define whether something is good or bad. And the work was good in the eyes of God. God has transcended to seen through his judgment. And finally, we can see in this text, Genesis 1, that the transcendence of God is seen over humanity. There is this stark difference in Genesis 1 between the divine God, the creator, and the created human. There's no symbiotic interaction. We don't get that until Genesis 2. If you were to stop in Genesis 1, all you would see was a God who has created humanity in the image of him because he is so awesome that his image was bared within us all. And then God in 26 through 28 utters commands about the purpose of humanity. And you don't see, you don't see humanity in Genesis 1 talk back to God. You don't see them interact with God. You don't see the, the, the characters of Adam and Eve until Genesis 2. Here in Genesis 1, we see a picture of God, the divine, the king, the emperor, the, the transcendent Lord. And you see humanity as the created subject. The transcendence of God is seen throughout this text. God is the hero in Genesis 1. He is the, the holy of the holiest, the king of the king. You can see it by the way he creates. You can see it by the way his name is referred to. You can see it by his power over the other gods, the heavenly lights that were, were, were believed to be so powerful back in that time and age. And you can see it over his dominion and power and lordship over humanity. In the book, The Character of God in Genesis 1, the author W. Lee Humphreys puts it like this. He says, while not specifically enthroned in a palace, temple, specially built for him, the overall image of God in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4a is royal. God appears as a king, a monarch whose words bring to pass, whose, who orders the realm he rules, who divides and separates, who marks off his authority in created images of himself. God is the absolute ruler of heaven and earth, shaping and governing a realm over and apart from which he stands. He commands, names, judges, and thereby shapes his realm. Then he populates it with living things, with life that regenerates life. He does not move among and mix with those who populate his realm. God is in, in the image of a king who creates from the outside. Can you see this picture of God? Can you see the agenda that Genesis 1 has? Saying that God is transcendent, is beyond our grasp, is holy, the holiest of the holiest. And so today in 2018, when we read Genesis 1 today... And we see all these claims about the majesty of God, the power that he is the creator. There is no one else. Back in those times, the gods were the sun, moon, and the stars. And Genesis 1 says, those guys have nothing. 
compared to God. In fact, our God is the one that created them. And we're not even going to use their name. So what can we learn today about this? What does this speak to us? Well, I think where we can begin is that there is something divine about the divine. There is something divine about the divine. There is something godlike about God. There is something amazing about the most amazing. There is something special about this God that we have all gathered here today to worship. In fact, in that movie, Rudy, that the, the underdog football player, one of my favorite lines in that movie is he's going to church on Sunday. And he asked the, the priest there, he said, well, what's, why? I don't remember the exact question, but he said, why, why do we do this? Why do we come and come to church? And uh, this priest says, if you, you come, you, you partake in this story to, first of all, remind you that there is a God. And secondly, to remind you that you are not it. And Genesis 1 does that. It reminds us that there is a creator. There is something amazing happening, something stirring, something special. And it's not from our own. This is something greater than us, bigger than who we are. We are his subjects. There is separation. And if you ever doubt that, Job 38 is a great place to go. Where God speaks to Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, where were you? We must acknowledge the power and majesty of the Creator. We must bow at the comparison of who he is. I think sometimes, if we're completely honest, if we're completely honest about ways that we are today and how, this, how we interact with the community, sometimes in an effort to make God, the divine, more palatable to those who are searching or to those who are on the outside, we tend to downplay this side of God, don't we? Sometimes in, in a way that we want to just make it more appealing, sometimes we tend to forget these details about the Creator. Sometimes we'll compare God to like a wise man or a neighbor across the street who can give advice here and there in times of need. Sometimes we'll corner God and say we haven't figured out to explain him better so that we can, I guess, uh, convince that, that we have the corner of who God is. But if Genesis 1 tells us anything, it's that we are, we are dealing with the creator of the world. And he cannot be contained. He cannot be cornered. And he is awesome and powerful like a king, like an emperor. And we do not do justice to his full form, to who he fully is, when we dumb it down or make it easier to understand, more palatable. 
sometimes in the routine of life, in the busyness of our day-to-day schedules, we forget the privilege that we have to, reun- to, to, uh, to unite and to meet with this incredible God. That God, we, we forget sometimes that this God is supreme. He is the creator. Which brings us to point number two, is that the interaction with the creator, Genesis 1 teaches us that the interaction with the creator surpasses the ordinary and is exceptional. Interaction with the creator surpass, surpasses the ordinary and is exceptional. Have any of you in here seen Star Wars, The Last Jedi? Raise your hand if you've seen it. All right, if you haven't seen it, I'm so sorry because I'm about to spoil it. <laughs> but there's a scene at the very end of Star Wars, The Last Jedi, where you have Princess Leia, and they are just getting pummeled by the, the bad guys. And then uh, Luke Skywalker, The Last Jedi, he comes in out of nowhere, and there is one scene at the very end of the movie where you have Princess Leia and you have Luke Skywalker talking before the battle. Has it, do you guys remember that scene? Anybody remember that scene? Who say you remember it? I know Brendan remembers that. Uh, well, people, the writers knew that this was probably the last scene that they would be together. Uh, in fact, since then, the, the actress has passed away. And they, there was a sense of, uh, people knew the, the specialness or the awesomeness or just the rareness of this event. In fact, the, uh, the, the director, Rian Johnson, wrote about this very scene when he said, it's bizarre because, you know, obviously we didn't know that was going to be a farewell scene. And it's odd because I remember when we were shooting the Luke Leia scene, it felt like church on set. It was usually a jov- jovial set, you know, a, a really happy, bouncy set. And that day, everyone was just quiet and just watching these two. It was like a hush over the whole set. It, it really did feel like church. It's the second time he's compared it to church. I remember there being a weight to the whole thing. And we all just felt like we're seeing something really special happen in a way that has never ever was for us on set. That was very very, uh, that, was a, that was very weirdly weight. This is, what, this is what Genesis 1 is about. It's this idea that there is something special. And that if we pause it and recognize it, then we can fully allow for the transcendence and awesomeness of what we are a part of and who we're able to interact with, how we can let it sit in. You know, we live in a world where we're trying to explain away everything. We try to explain away and, you know, certain emotions and feelings. We could probably find a website or some doctor that could explain the neurons in our brain or what happened here. And there's probably somebody who has an explanation about what happened at the Star Wars set when, when there was something unexplainable that happened where it caused everybody to pause and be still and recognize the weight of what was happening, the specialness. I mean, we... We could, have, we could probably explain it away somehow, but I don't think there's words. And I think we all know the feeling. We know what this is like. We've experienced it. I mean, when a bride walks down the aisle holding the father and the crowd stands, 
when you witness someone who is about to die and you're by their bed and you know that the last breath is about to happen. When you hold that newborn baby in your arms for the first time and you look into the eyes of a new creation, you know, these are things that words can't explain. These are transcendent experiences. These are things that are set apart from our normal vocabulary. And we do have a word in our vocabulary as Christians for set apart. Does anybody know what that word is? Holy. 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 That this is what Genesis 1 is referring to, that God is holy. And that life in the midst of God, there are things that are beyond words that are holy. When Isaiah 6, when, he, when God, when Isaiah has a confrontation, well, sees God in, in Isaiah 6, and they, they meet, Isaiah is struck with humility and awe and fear. And you know what he says to God? Holy, holy, holy. This is what Genesis 1 refers to. We are about something special because we are here to sing praises, to pray to, and to learn from the creator of the world. Let us never forget this gift. Let us never forget how special it is that we have the opportunity to live this out. Let's pray together and sing. And while we sing, if you have prayers about this, you're invited to come forward. I'll be here. We'll have elders on the side. If you have a prayer and you want to pray with a person next to you, that's, that's great too. But we have gathered here together. We have come from our homes and united as a people to celebrate the transcendence of God. May we never forget the holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's stand and sing together.